This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. On this special year-end episode of the podcast, we're highlighting segments from four of our favorite conversations from 2023, including sociologist Matthew Desmond on how to abolish poverty, activist Sister Helen Prejean, and singer Ryan McKinney on the opera Dead Man Walking, poet-scholar Joshua Bennett on the history of spoken word, and philosopher Zena Hitz on the nature of religious life. I'm also joined by Commonweal's podcast editor, David Dalt, who tells us about his involvement in our programming and what makes the podcast so special. That's all coming right up on this episode of the Commonweal Podcast. So I'm really thrilled that I'm able to introduce to the podcast uh, audience of Commonweal, our podcast editor, David Dalt, who's been at it since the inception of our podcast. David, thank you so much for being here. And it's actually, I think the onus is on us for not having had you here sooner, but I'm glad we can finally do it. Dominic, I'm so glad to be with you and thank you for those kind words. Just to give the folks out there a little bit of a sense of how we operate, you, of course, are not here in our office. You're not even in New York City. Where are you? I'm in Hyde Park on Chicago's south side, a beautiful neighborhood just next to the University of Chicago, and I've lived here for the last 10 years. And as uh, David Letterman used to say on his show, so what do you do out there in Hyde Park, David? Well, my full-time job is I'm a professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. But for the last several years, I have had a business that I run where I help to produce and support audio programs like the Commonweal podcast. And it's been a chance to really get to know a broad sweep of religious and particularly Catholic programs. And I'm delighted to get a chance to do this work. Well, you've been such a huge part of uh, of our work, as I said, since the beginning, and you've edited some 120 episodes uh, of the podcast, I'd imagine. And uh, I know you wouldn't do this if you kind of didn't like what we do. And and you, you've said some nice things about our podcast to us personally, but what do you enjoy about it? And what makes you not just uh, want to edit it, but listen to it? Well, so I have described myself through the years as a commonweal Catholic. I wasn't born into the Catholic faith. I am a convert. But as I was in that process of coming into the church, I was exposed to commonweal pretty early on, and it really matched the kind of Catholicism that I wanted to live in my own life. And so I have been a fan of the magazine for going on two and a half decades now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, through a, just a weird mix of circumstances, got to know your former publisher, Tom Baker, really, really well. And we we would get together a couple of times a year for a meal, and one of the things that we would kick around is the idea of having a podcast. And so I really have been helping to have this thing come to life from even before we rolled tape on the first episode. And I'll just simply say that when we finally uh, had that first episode finished and I was listening back to it the first time and I, I heard what was then the theme music and I heard your voice saying, this is the Commonweal podcast and all of that, I, I kind of got choked up. I was really, I was really excited to see this new aspect of the wonderful work that you do come into the world. So that's part of what I really enjoy about this is that 
I get a chance to help to bring your personalities out from behind the magazine, and I get a chance to bring an extra dimension to the stories that you all tell so well there on the editorial side. Thanks. You know, and that that means a lot. And you're no novice in the in the world of podcasting. You're not a newcomer. In fact, uh, you've got your own podcast, David, and it's called Things Not Seen. Oh, maybe you could just describe it a little bit and tell us about what you do on that podcast. Sure. So for folks that are familiar with NPR long form interview shows like Fresh Air or before it ended its production on NPR, Krista Tippett's On Being, my show Things Not Seen is very much in that style. It's an hour long. It's actually a radio show that broadcasts here in the Chicago area, but it goes out every week as well as a podcast. And the whole goal of it is to have long form, erratic conversations, sometimes across differences of faith and sometimes across commonalities of faith. But I really wanted to have a show that took faith journeys seriously and to really dig into how it impacts their vocations and their lives. Mm-hmm. I should uh, tell everybody, of course, that you should give things not seen a listen. And we just want to say thanks again, David, for the amazing work you've helped us uh, accomplish over the past uh, however many years we've been doing this podcast. So thanks uh, for being here. You're most welcome, and thank you for all of the work that you all put into the program on that side of the screen. You make my job easy. Thank you, David. In his book, Poverty by America, sociologist Matthew Desmond argues that the fact that nearly 40 million Americans live in poverty constitutes a national embarrassment. But he also says it's a choice. If poverty exists, it's because we wish and will it to. I interviewed Matthew about his book last summer. I want to ask you about a, a, a kind of a concept or image you raise in your book, and that's the one of private opulence versus public squalor. And this is something I find a pernicious and insidious phenomenon. And it seems to me that it's been long in the making, but it's become so much more apparent in recent years. Can you talk about what you mean by private opulence and public squalor? It's an old phrase, definitely not my phrase, and it mm-hmm. goes back to some Roman historians, but I encountered it in John Kenneth Galbraith's famous book, The Affluent Society. And Galbraith made this point where if you have a country where a lot of rich people live alongside a lot of poor people, this momentum, this process starts. And the process is private opulence and, and public poverty, which means as the rich get richer, they withdraw from public spaces. They don't need to use the public park. They got the country club. They don't need to swim in the public pool. They can dig their own pool. And as that accelerates through things like tax breaks and other policies, the what is shared and what is public becomes crummy and shabby and becomes exclusively used just by, by poor folks that have to use these services that no one likes because no one likes using shabby things. Mm-hmm. And that drags everyone down. Right, Not just folks that are under the heel of economic desperation in America, but also folks that are quite secure in their money mm-hmm. because you can't really live a full free life if the public sphere is disinvested from. So it's the difference between riding a train in Switzerland or other parts in Europe and riding a bus in some parts of America. You can tell who invests in public goods and who uses those public goods. And so I think this is a, an incredibly pernicious part of American society. I like that word you used. And it's something that should give us all pause, including those of us that do have enough money to 
to afford those country clubs or private pools because it's just another example how poverty in our midst drags everyone down. I want to talk about another uh, concept you raise, another dynamic at play that's maybe not entirely unrelated, and uh, it's uh, what you term the scarcity diversion. Can you talk a little bit about this, and what can we do about these dynamics and these realities to achieve what you call the personal and political project of abolishing poverty? I'm so grateful for your close read of the book. You hear the scarcity diversion all the time. And you hear it when someone says, well, in a world of scarce resources, what do you want to do? Or you hear it especially when our elected leaders say, well, we just can't afford to cut child poverty. We can't afford to give everyone in this country access to a dentist. And that's just a lie. Mm -hmm. That's just a lie. We could afford it. We could afford it if the richest among us took less from the government. We could afford it if the country did a lot more to invest in educational opportunity than it did to guard fortunes. And so the scarcity diversion strikes us as something serious people say. I think if you look at the data and look at what this country of dollars could do, we have to reject that. And we have to come up with a language, like a reflex, that, that is able to say, look, you're lying. You're lying. And we could afford to do more. We just choose not to. And the opposite of the scarcity diversion is, is abundance. This kind of recognition that the country has a lot. There's a lot to go around. And wouldn't we be a safer, healthier, freer, more vibrant country if we embrace that, that mindset? And that's a policy decision. And that's a personal decision. And you brought this up at the end of your question about what the end is here. And for me, the end is the abolition of poverty. I think our poverty rate should be zero. That doesn't mean we're all equal. That doesn't mean that everything's perfect, but it means that no one in this land of riches should fall below a certain level of income and a certain level of, of happiness and, and well-being. This September, opening night at the Metropolitan Opera in New York featured a performance of Jake Heggie's Dead Man Walking, based on the memoir of Sister Helen Prejean. My colleague, associate editor Griffin Olenek, interviewed the composer and reviewed the show for our print magazine and website while I got to speak with Sister Helen herself, along with singer Ryan McKinney for the podcast. Times have changed since the mid-80s when you began your work uh, to abolish the death penalty, yet many Americans continue to support capital punishment, including, as you say, by things like firing squad and untested drugs. So where are you focusing the majority of your efforts? And do you think the U.S. could abolish the death penalty within a certain number of years, within your lifetime, our lifetimes? Absolutely. We are going to abolish the death penalty. I don't know a time frame, mm -hmm. but I know this. I just got back from New York and the Met, the incredible energy around that, and a huge setback. We just selected a governor in Louisiana who has said that he is the one, he said, we'll do whatever we need to do to get these executions going. See, and what really frightens me is I know he has the power to do it. The same power that Trump had when after 17 years of no federal executions, he lined up 13 people and killed them. It's one of the fault lines in the way the Supreme Court set up the death penalty. First of all, they gave an impossible criteria. They said, you only 
choose for death the worst of the worst murders. And nobody knows what that means. Worst of the worst. Kill a child, kill a grandmother, kill a policeman, kill a farmer. Who knows what worst of the worst is? And then they couple that very fuzzy criteria with complete discretion of prosecutors to seek death and to see it through or not. So whenever you have a death happening, it's because somebody is pulling that trigger to make it happen. As Trump did before he left office, then as Oklahoma following him, the attorney general of the state lined up 22 people to be executed. And these are real deaths. And that's the thing. People hear statistics, and they, but I've been in there with six human beings, six who got word you got four more days to live, three more, and to count down with them in the last days of their life. It's an unbearable torture. And to have the distance of the public from it. And then Louisiana, the people handily voted this guy in. So I know we got work to do. My own home state of Louisiana, we're going to have a meeting this week we got to plan a campaign and we got to get to the people. And then the churches, we have the bishops now, they're coming out, they're saying the right things, the bishops. But the people in the pews haven't changed very much at all because it's a real thing of education on the ground with the people. And what gives me hope is that the 37 years I've watched when people can get close to the story and really see the whole thing that we don't have to kill human beings that they get it. I know there's hope that people have good hearts. The job is to do it. So right now we're facing a terrible thing in Louisiana. So what do you do when you get set back? You organize, you get out on the ground with people, you go door to door, you start educating them. But it's the hard work. Look at the state of Virginia, which executed more people than any other state. And look what Virginia did. Virginia abolished the death penalty. They reached out to law enforcement. They reached out to victims' families. They reached out to conservatives. They reached out in every way and began to work with him to educate. So that's what we got to do. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that stand out to me. I think Sister Helen's amazing book and the amazing story of her life, one of the things that jumps out is we think of the things these people have done as separate from us that there's so what a thing awful people do but i think deep down like we actually know that's not true we know that we're the same kind of people that they are and many of us have done things that we have a lot of shame about things that maybe don't rise to that level but the understanding that someone that's done the worst thing you can imagine could be forgiven could find redemption could be released from that means that you yourself that I myself could be released from whatever I'm holding. Mm-hmm. And when you add Jake Heggie's music, that Sister Helen says is so eloquently, but that music guides your heart, right? It, the story is the structure, but you don't have to understand it. You don't have to agree with it to have that music enter you and open you up. And you don't just feel, oh, I could forgive this person that did this terrible thing. It's I could be forgiven for whatever I've done even if that's something really terrible. Or I could forgive somebody that's done something to me, even if it doesn't rise to the level of someone going to prison. And I think that's a really universal experience for human beings, this holding on to what we've done wrong and what's been done wrong to us and not being able to let it go. 
is such a blocks the joy in our lives. And when you release that, even though this story is really sad, right? It's a sad opera to most people, but you talk to people afterwards and they have all of this joy because they're released from this um, feeling of hate that sort of pervades everything right now. And I think that's the way the music does that without you having to really think about it. And then the framing of the story, it, it it's, can be very transformational. And, and I think also there are some people who it makes very angry because I think they're not ready to have that transformation. And that's fair. Not everyone is in that place in their lives. But I, I think that's why it elicits such visceral reactions. Yeah. And Sister Helen, what about you? Talk a little bit about how it still works its spell on you or how it still resonates with yeah. you. Well, you know what I love about it is that I'm presented in such a human way. Because mm. I did make mistakes. I didn't know what I was doing. Tim Robbins' famous little thing that he'd say while he was working on the film was the nun is in over our head. I was. I was. Mm -hmm. And boy, there's that scene in the upper window between the victim's family saying, you don't know what it's like. The mother of Joe going, you don't know what it's like to see your child slip through. And I was over my head. And I made the mistake of not reaching out right away to the victim's family mm -hmm. and learned from that. Learned. And so I love that what Sister Helen Ari is my journey to Christ, to the people, to myself, made me wise, made me strong, made me human. So it's a very human story of me. And I like it. They don't present me as this hero who just takes care of every challenge that comes along. And I, I like it that it presents me as a human being. It's the way I wrote the book. Back in the spring, poet-scholar Joshua Bennett released Spoken Word, A Cultural History. It's the first book to trace the development of the art form, from its origin in New York City and the New Yorican Poets Cafe, to its proliferation on social media today. A prominent slam champion himself, Bennett spoke with Commonweal Audience Development Director Claudia Avila-Kosnahan about the spirituality of spoken word. Marcus was the man that participated in that poetry slam when you were 11. And he said to you that you had heart. Heart, yeah. But I'd like to hear from you, especially considering the way you're talking about prayer and about the preachers that inspired you and the people of faith that inspired you. What did that mean to you when he said that you had heart? Because you said you never forgot that. But what does that mean? What did that mean for you then? And what does that mean for you now? I think there are these unique kind of moments of blackmail tenderness that aren't often expressed in dominant cultural representations, even of Blackness, even of Black culture. So one of them is being an 11-year-old boy, right? And having, and I don't know how old Marcus was, it could have been 17, 18, early 20s, but having what seemed to me like this older, very refined Black artist tell me that I had heart. It's one of the highest compliments you can give somebody, right? Because what he's saying in that moment is, you're 11 years old. <laughs> the fact that you got up here at all and competed against adults, you showed great courage, right? And you stuck with it and you performed your heart out. That's a big deal, right? You weren't, even if you were afraid, you overcame. The point is not to not be afraid, at least the way I was raised. You're going to be afraid in all sorts of scenarios. If you're sharp, you'll actually be afraid, maybe a fair amount, because <laughs> there's a lot going on, especially in South Yonkers, where and when I grew up to, to be afraid of or to be wary of it. So for him to tell me that I had heart, it meant that I overcame the fear of that moment. 
right? And I stepped into my gift and I operated in my gift. It was part of the astonishment for me seeing preachers too, especially if you don't feel like the congregation is especially lively that day. It, it always just seemed to me, it takes great courage to get up there. One, to operate within the idea that you have a kind of message from the divine to relate to all these people who are going through things you can't fathom. And they've perhaps come to you not just for a word of the week, not just for a passage to carry with them, but maybe to sustain them, to tell them that life is worth it. That's a major responsibility. Whether or not every preacher who gets up in front of a pulpit feels that, it always seemed to me, even as a very small boy, that was perhaps one of the greatest responsibilities I could imagine. That's what it meant to have heart. It's that you push through that fear, you push through the sense that you were outgunned, perhaps would be outclassed. It's like maybe, maybe this heart is something that I could tap into more often in this way. I can be up against what feel like insurmountable odds. I felt like I could get up there and everything would fall apart. The world would fall apart. And I think Marcus maybe even recognized that on my face. And he encouraged me, which, uh, which meant a great deal. I always imagine when I'm watching a poet performing that there is a sense of relief at the end of the performance, but it's not because or only because the performance is complete, <laughs> but because something has happened to the poet in the process of sharing themselves because they share so much of themselves. They're sharing their experience, their emotion, their voice, and their body just in the performance. I feel like it's a real sacrificial kind of giving to the people who are present. You said that you went through a period in your life where you even thought that you'd be a minister. Do you believe that your calling to be a performer of spoken word has satisfied that calling? Because I think those callings, sometimes we don't know how to define them, but then we find that what we do ends up being the thing that we were actually looking for. I wanted to be a preacher from the time I was four years old. So I wanted to be a preacher before I wanted to be anything else. It was preacher, paleontologist, and then professor came later. And I was like quite literally in training to become a minister in the AME Zion tradition. So I was in something called Timothy training at my home church in New York. And it was about a week or so, I think, before my trial sermon. And I wrote to the lead pastor at our church and said, I didn't think I could do it because I had a crisis of faith. So I was pretty close. It wasn't like this is something I thought about sometimes. Like I was dedicated to it. I was devoted to it. And I thought that's what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I thought I was maybe going to lead a church and maybe also be a professor to go teach on the weekdays, teach African-American poetry and environmental writing. And then on Sundays to help lead worship and do the whole thing. And is it connected? People have told me over the years that it is. I, I don't know. I don't know. I think I'm still learning why I'm on earth. I think when my son was born, it, it felt a bit more, it felt far more concrete than it had in the past. Because part of why I'm on earth is to be his dad. And I really mean that. I don't mean just as a kind of a like biological fact. Like I, I feel it every day that part of what I'm supposed to do is take care of this boy and hopefully use everything that has come with my spoken word career to say something meaningful to and about his generation of, of children all across the globe. They're entering a world that just has all sorts of not just like terrors, 
lying in wait and unimaginable beauty too. But there's just a lot of responsibility, right? They're up against a lot and they're amazing. And just in being August's father, I think I've learned a great deal about calling, I imagine. And so I hope those things are connected. I hope that I'm giving people words for the week and for the month and for the year and for their lives. I hope that I'm encouraging people to tap into those moments of transcendence is, is part of it, but also a kind of transcendence that is uniquely possible when people are gathered together. There's just something to that, that when I stopped going to church, I lost, that I just don't want to pretend that wasn't important. Or that it's not that it's not meaningful. Like getting together every Sunday with my family, with my friends, with my fellow congregants, that was an absolutely essential part of my life for most of my time on this planet. I've had preachers throughout my life that changed my life. Right. W. Darren Moore, Nelson Hunter, like these these people changed my life. They helped shape my literary imagination. They certainly shaped the way I teach. I know that I'm tapping into those gesticulations and that pacing when I teach a hundred percent. You can see that black preachers really shaped me in that moment. So I hope they're connected. I hope they're connected and that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I hope that I'm doing what I'm here to do and doing it well. Lastly, we're featuring one of my favorite segments of the year with one of our favorite authors, Zena Hitz, who several years ago left a career in academia to live in an intentional community in Canada. Her time there became the basis for her book, A Philosopher Looks at Religious Life, a chapter of which she published this year in Commonweal. Here she's in conversation with our senior editor, Matthew Boudway. Broadly construed, you spend a lot of time talking about traditional religious communities You spend a good deal of time talking about your own experience at Madonna House, which is a not-so-traditional religious community, but one that still makes full use of the resources of the Western and Eastern monastic tradition. One way I thought a person could approach your book, if I was trying to describe it to a stranger, is as a commentary on two verses from the book of Revelation, which you quote, Know your works. I know that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and have no need of anything, and yet do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And you write, it is the epitome of lukewarmness to treat God as one choice among others, as an added benefit to one's already wonderful, flourishing life. So there's that distinction between, between lukewarmness and wholeheartedness, which is obviously central to, to your book. But there's also another distinction, and that's between self-deception and true self-awareness or humility. And I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about how those two are related, how those two contrasts are related, what wholeheartedness has to do with humility, what lukewarmness has to do with self-deception. Uh, that's a fabulous question. And it'll take me a minute to think clearly about it. I think that it's easiest to see the connection from one end rather than the other. So self-deception and lukewarmness is a bit easier. So you are lukewarm. That is, you think of God as being this kind of cool addition to your life that's already great because you have an illusion about your own relationship to God. That is, you think that God is something that you are adding to your life 
rather than some got the fact that God is in fact responsible for whatever is good in your life. So if we take that seriously, and we don't tend to take it seriously until we meet with some kind of grave crisis, grief, or something that makes our lives suddenly seem to lose meaning, or some kind of desperation, we don't really believe. We might say with words, but we don't really believe that we rely on God for everything. One example I can think of, and I, I mentioned in the thing I read at the beginning, I, I spent some time doing jail ministry. And so I, in the Baltimore Women's Jail, and the women who I met there had literally, often literally nothing. They'd gone in with some clothes on their back. They were people who were from the bottom end of our society, so the, just the absolute bottom rung in the social or drug addicts, prostitutes, etc. Maybe violent people. I don't know whether the people I talked to were actually violent, but they, they all were intensely interested in God and how God could help them. They knew that the only way out of their situation was the grace of God. And that's in direct contrast to the way that I am by my social habits. And most of the people I know are where you think, well, your life's pretty good. We're very wealthy American middle-class people very comfortable. Our lives have a lot of very basically good things. And we eat good food. We sleep on comfortable beds. We have people who care about us. But it's just not a lot. We don't, we're insulated from violence, usually. So I think that we, yeah, it makes it very easy to think that we are in fact in charge of our own flourishing, whereas in fact we are not. So that I think is the connection between lukewarmness and self-deception. And then the other one was wholeheartedness and humility or self-awareness understood as the opposite of self-deception, a true sense of oneself in the light of God's mercy and one's need for it. Right. So I think it has to do with our, the nature and structure of our desire for God, right? So if we are fully aware of our weakness, our dependence on God, then we, I suppose you could go either way. You could go is there is, after all, the option in the Revelation passage of being cold. So you could hate God because of your dependence. And that there might be a, I don't think you could have complete wholeheartedness, but you could have something close to it. And then you could also, in full recognition of your dependence on God, love him and put him first. That would be the connection. But I don't want to take words out of your mouth, but I feel like the notion of wholeheartedness needs more clarification. Putting God first doesn't mean having no motivation that conflicts with the love of God. It's not purity. It's something more like clarity. And I've struggled to articulate to myself what the difference is. So if I think about my life, for instance, before I joined Madonna House, which I describe in the excerpt as being this attempt to just patch things together that I could never feel quite satisfied with any, you know, I was doing, I'd do one thing I wasn't satisfied, I'd do another thing I wasn't satisfied. I, just, I never, I was always patching together. And I say that unconsciously, which I think is true, unconsciously, really what I cared about was something like status, even though it didn't feel like that. And I don't think it looked like that. Because after all, I was doing all this volunteer work and I was a teacher and stuff like that. So I, I wasn't obviously a status-driven person. But I think... I definitely feel in my experience the difference between that phase of my life and the phase of my life since I've left Madonna House, which is 
I know, I know at the core of my being what matters most to me. And I'm always trying to get to it. And that's not, not saying I'm not failing more or less all the time, but I'm at peace because I know that in some way my life has been set up in such a way that the end is in the right place. Even if I'm pulling away from it at various times, it's, there's this kind of magnetic pull that always draws me back to it. I think that's how I'd want to describe wholeheartedness from my own lens of my own experience. We hope you've enjoyed revisiting these conversations as much as we have. Thanks for listening to the Commonweal Podcast in 23, and stay tuned for more episodes next year. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>